This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Daniel Welcome to the Remnant Podcast. Don't touch your iPhone. Uh, this is the Remnant Podcast, but this is not Jonah Goldberg. Jonah is out. Jonah has been dropping off his daughter at college. And so this is David French filling his colleague, David French, filling in for him. So we've got, even though I'm not Jonah, we've got a great podcast for you today. I've got Klon Kitchen here from AEI, formerly of Heritage. And Klon has been with Jonah before on an excellent podcast. And so Klon, you went from Heritage to AEI. Is that kind of like going from like the Bloods to the Crips? Well, I'm, I'm sure some people feel like it's that way. Uh, I, I've been man, I've managed to, to, to maintain friendships, and uh, I think we're I think we're all doing okay. No no gang wars yet. Okay, excellent, excellent. All right, so we're going to talk about a couple of things because Klon has a really interesting career track. Uh, after 9/11, you joined um, an unnamed uh, intelligence agency. Okay, it was Shield. You're one of the agents of Shield. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Joined an unnamed intelligence agency and actually deployed to Afghanistan. Correct. When when did you get there uh, after nine eleven? So uh, by early two thousand and three, I was deploying alongside Joint Special Operations Command, uh, and the the group I was with was specifically tasked with the uh, the Bin Laden hunt. So looking for the top tier Al Qaeda guys in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And how long did you? A, do that work in Afghanistan, and B, how, how long were you working in the national security establishment? So I was in the U.S. Uh, intelligence community, or IC, for more than 15 years, and I was doing the, the terrorist hunt for, uh, let's see, about four years, and then deployments to Afghanistan were typically 90-day hops. Gotcha. And then uh, after that, you've become... Yeah, well, what what would be the right way to phrase your expertise? Um, you know, basically everything about big tech and cyber <laughs> threats, right? Uh, I think you're being generous. Yeah, I, I <laughs> I've, I've done a lot of technology policy work, especially when I was at Heritage and we stood up the uh, the Center for Technology Policy. But now I tend to focus on the intersection between technology and national security. Okay, fantastic. So here's what we're going to do in the podcast: we're going to start with Afghanistan. And we're going to move into cybersecurity slash big tech. Uh, so we're going to cover a lot of ground, but let's let's start with Afghanistan. You've got a Substack um, called the Kitchen Sink, correct? S Y N C, the Kitchen Sink. And I was reading it; it's excellent. I recommend it. And I was reading it, and you said something very interesting. And I want you to to uh, um, explain. A bit more, you were saying that you believe that we had an opportunity to destroy our enemy in Afghanistan early 
post 9-11. Um, that in in fact, you know, a lot of people have said that this what we what we've encountered now and what we're enduring now to greater or lesser degrees is inevitable. Um, it seems like you disagree that there was an opportunity, there was an a moment early on when we could have inflicted a decisive defeat on the Taliban. So I'd love for you to explain explain that a bit more. Yeah. And obviously that word choice was deliberate when I say we had an opportunity. I don't think in any stretch of the imagination was it guaranteed. Um, but I do think um, that in the early days, we, when bin Laden and um, a, a group that we affectionately used to refer to as the Circle of Jerks, it was the top 12 <laughs> al-Qaeda leaders who mm-hmm. moved out of Afghanistan into Pakistan, and then ultimately a few of whom were uh, collected into Iran. Um, there were there were some early days where if we could have gotten bin Laden, if we could have gotten Zawahri, and if we could have, um, you know, gotten a, a large portion uh, of that group of um, the, the Al-Qaeda Shura Council, I think it's reasonable to believe that Al-Qaeda would not have been allowed to uh, reconstitute and metastasize as it did, uh, especially uh, in, in northern Iraq later on under uh, Zarqawi and, and others. Um, there's no guarantees, but you know, in the in the in the immediate aftermath of 9/11, there was a lot of political will, and uh, the the one thing that we allowed ourselves to be to, to happen was we were taken in by the Pakistanis and their assurances, even under Musharraf. Uh, that that uh, that border area, the federally administrative tribal area, was allowed to operate, uh, I think, uh, too freely, and we would. I remember watching. Pakistani uh, tribal police essentially moved through the area with trucks and loudspeakers announcing that the Americans were coming and they would clear everybody out. And we allowed that to go on because we were making all kinds of political uh, choices. So all that to say, uh, I don't think it's at all guaranteed that, that we could have stomped this out, but I can say categorically that we didn't do all that we could have done to make that more likely. Gotcha. Now, I was noticing as you're talking, you're talking mainly about Al Qaeda and not so much the Taliban. Um, and that's something that I've long considered is that it was always going to be difficult to eradicate, to destroy, so to speak, the Taliban, especially when they had a safe haven in Pakistan. Um, defeating an enemy that has a, a, a counterinsurgency operation where your enemy has a safe haven is one of the greatest military challenges. Um, and to me, that's always been one of our, our key challenges in Afghanistan. So is your sort of, so you, you separate out Al Qaeda there and say, we could have kind of stomped Al Qaeda. What's your thought on the Taliban? Uh, yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's an excellent point. Um, and the reality is, is yeah, if you look at, uh, counterinsurgency warfare strategy, I mean, you have to occupy and hold land. I know we talk about occupying hearts and minds, and that's certainly an aspect of, of, um, of kind of what they call human terrain capital. Um, but in terms of uh, occupying Afghanistan, we were never going to do that. We were never going to be able to send enough troops uh, to do that. Uh, and that likely did mean uh, that we were going to be constrained in our capacity to ultimately uh, decisively put down a Taliban insurgency. Even with that being the case, though, um, I think that there were uh, 
many profound choices that we could have made that would have uh, allowed us to manage that problem. Perhaps Taliban insurgency was always going to be a problem that we managed and not one that we solved. But that doesn't mean that we couldn't have solved it 100 times better than we did over the last 20 years. Or man- managed it 100 times better than... Yeah, yeah. excuse me, managed it better. Yeah. yeah, yeah. that's always been my perspective as well, that given the reality of the Pakistan safe haven, given the various constraints, a practical... Um, geographic, political, um, we were never going to be able to fully occupy Afghanistan, even to the extent that we did Iraq. Uh, I was during in, in Iraq during the surge, and we did not have the same problem. I was at a base about 14 miles from the Iranian border. And although there was more Iranian assistance to al-Qaeda than a lot of people like to acknowledge, there was not a safe haven. And we had the advantage of being able to take ground, hold ground, and deny the enemy a safe haven that it seems like we didn't have in Afghanistan. And so therefore, you had a much greater ability to defeat the insurgency than just manage the insurgency. At least that was, by the time we left our, you know, by the time, you know, 2010 rolls around, there's what, 800 al-Qaeda fighters in all of Iraq. And we never got to that point with the Taliban in Afghanistan. No, but, you know, so some of the decisions that I think are just categorical. So right now, uh, a lot of people talk about the Haqqani Network. Well, that was the the original, the old man of the Haqqani Network was a guy we were very familiar with, Jaladadun Haqqani and his son Siraj Haqqani. They were running the Haqqani Network out of that federally administrated tribal area along the border. And they were, in many ways, the supply chain uh, for for Taliban operations. They were moving... Um, uh, improvised explosive devices uh, and and components and material and everything else. And again, we at least at some point, um, you know, had these dreams that we were going to somehow co-op the Haqqani network and convince them, you know, and when what they needed, I mean, I'm not to be callous about this, but what they needed was a hellfire. You know, I mean, we, we needed to take care of these guys and we had it mapped out. Uh, but I think um, many and frankly uh, of us in the intelligence community, um, we're doing the best that we could, but we were probably too clever by half, and uh, and I think it cost us. Yeah. So, what's been your perspective on sort of the last four years in game here? Moving from the you know, there was a you wouldn't even want to call it a surge, sort of a micro surge, where the, for a time the Trump administration reinforced American forces in Afghanistan. From that moment through to now, we saw a peace deal with the Taliban. Um, and then we've seen this 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 uh, pullout, and I know there are those who dispute the idea that I would call this an abrupt uh, collapse of the Afghan military. Yeah, there was a lot of gradual erosion, but then it reached a tipping point in the last <laughs> few weeks. So, what's what's been your sort of take over the the arc of the last four years or so? Well, okay, first of all, I think we have to acknowledge that there's broad bipartisan support for pulling out of Afghanistan, generally speaking. I think there there are a lot of Americans. Now, there'll be disagreement and some debate as to what that pullout should look like. But generally speaking, uh, both, both Trump and President Biden were elected in part because of what they said they were going to do in terms of Afghanistan. Um, so I just have to recognize that. Two, I think the way that we went about... Um, negotiating with the Taliban gave them more credit than they deserved and, and allowed them to influence this in ways that, um, uh, 
I think it was pretty clear that we were desperate to get out and that we were going to leave. And I think they played their position very strongly. Um, and, and, uh, I will admit that the Biden administration did have, uh, some things foisted upon it that they were going to have to deal with that they might not have chosen to do, you know, that, a particular way themselves. That being said, when the, when the president says, when, when president Biden says that he was somehow, you know, chained to this decision, he has seen fit to undo all kinds of Trump decisions. And he had every opportunity to do something differently here and he chose not to. And, and I think it, it's pretty clear to me that he was largely in agreement with, with this decision and that he was happy to kind of push the gas pedal down even further to kind of make it happen quickly. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that he was very determined. He's very determined to be the one who gets us out. Um, and he, I mean, I think he wanted to be able to tell the story, for example, going into 2024, should he run for re-election? Trump said he was going to give you infrastructure. I gave you infrastructure. Trump said he was going to give you uh, an end to the Afghan war. I ended the Afghan war. You know, that telling a particular story that he accomplished the popular things that Trump didn't accomplish I don't think he, you know, the, the, here's going to be the interesting question to me, and I, I'd love your perspective on this. How clearly was he warned that a pullout, that the pullout would lead to such a rapid collapse where you're talking at one point seven provincial capitals in five days, Kabul 48 hours after that. Is this the kind of thing where uh, the intelligence community failed him or he failed us by re refusing to respond to the warnings of the intelligence community. So obviously I wasn't in the room, but I've seen things like this happen plenty to where, you know, I can at least guess uh, to some of it. So one, I doubt that we had the kind of exquisite intelligence to be able to tell him definitively one way or the other, here's your time frame. Right. I suspect that most of, you know, just going on press reporting out of The New York Times and other places right now, I think most of the assessments said anywhere from, you know, the, the Afghanistan government would be able to hold off the Taliban, at least from Kabul, for anywhere between six and 12 months, uh, maybe even maybe even 24 months uh, by, by some estimates. Um, and, you know, like, look, we, we our intelligence footprint in Afghanistan from a from any meaningful sense, had, had been significantly drawn down already. And so our ability to provide the fidelity that the president would be looking for wasn't there. But, okay, all that to say, I suspect that a large portion of this is also driven by the fact of, and David, I'm sure you've been in conversations like this, where you have the, the, the stakeholders gathered around the table and someone is saying, you know, look, I'm telling you it's six months, but I just don't know. You know, I don't know what these guys are actually going to do. And if, you know, if the if the president just if the Afghan president just leaves town, I don't know what effect that's going to have. And then some senior policy advisor to the president says, look, I get it. This is happening. So tell us what tell us something. Right. This, I'm not I'm not going to the president and saying we don't know. So this is going to happen. Give me your best guess and let's move on. And it seems to me that the things that I can't explain in terms of the collapse and the aftermath, I don't understand at all the decision about closing Bagram before all of this was settled. I don't, I don't get that at all. I don't understand what rationale would lead someone to make that choice. The most cogent defense I've heard of that is that the proximity of Kabul airport to Kabul was, makes it a superior 
location for an evacuation, but that would be only if we controlled the city. <laughs> and and the, the abandonment of, of Bagram then meant that if we didn't control the city, we're extraordinarily vulnerable at the airport. Well, and, and proximity to Kabul is nice, but if you've only got one runway, the right the constraint on your ability to do evacuation operations doesn't just like that's completely overwhelmed by whatever advantage comes from proximity right right yeah there there's so much of this that 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 is one of the most inexplicable elements the the other one I, you know afghanistan and iraq are different okay but there is an interesting commonality with your the uh, american trained forces <laughs> In the sense that when ISIS came across the border in 2014, what we saw was Iraqi, American-trained Iraqi military melt away. I mean, just melt away until we intervened again, sent our advisors back in, brought in air support, et cetera. And it seems that how many times do we have to go through a situation where forces that we've trained, when we pull the rug out from under them and make it create the perception that their loss is inevitable, that they're going to go ahead and cut deals or leave. Like they're not going to do some sort of Alamo stand. <laughs> and we've seen that. They, they did that when we, when we invade, right? We watched the Iraqi military do that as we were coming through. Right. Oh, and then, you know, in 2001, the, you know, I, I distinctly remember when we first went into Afghanistan, a lot of people were very cognizant of Afghanistan as the graveyard of empires, as the, you know, we had just... I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we had seen the Mujahideen grind down elements of the Red Army, the Soviet Army, in, in Afghanistan. So that we were not that far removed from it. And so there was a lot of concern. And then all of a sudden we come in and we, it seemed like we just swept, just swept the Taliban aside. And I, part of me wonders if the apparent ease of that early victory had the perverse effect of leaving us unprepared for what we really, truly faced over the long term. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right. And and your point about us pulling the rug out from underneath the Afghans, I mean, number one, we trained them to be reliant upon American air support. And we've pulled that. And then even the maintenance crews to maintain their air force were American contractors. We pulled them. Right. And, and so we've, we did not set this up to transition well, and we did not do the hard work to, that was required. And we've allowed ourselves to be put in the, and to be very clear, there are no easy choices going forward. So it's, I'm not sitting here saying that, oh, well, if we just do X, Y, and Z, all of the pain goes away and we're going to get back to right. I think we're past that. I think we only have hard, difficult choices going forward and there is no risk-free strategy. So if you're sitting at the table, let me let me ask you the hard question. You're one of those guys at the at the table and you're talking to the national security advisor. What are you saying in this circumstance? So I don't think any of this will sound particularly novel. I think you you will have heard most of this from other people. Um, but you know, number one, we got to push out the perimeter on the airport. The reason you have to do that is because we need it to maintain control, right? We we have a we have a human body problem. Uh, and so we need to push out the perimeter so that we can um, get that under control. We, th a lot of people don't know that there are portions of the airport that the United States doesn't control, that the Taliban actually controls. So we have to push that out. Two, um, 
I would be moving in personnel and equipment to support extended um, personnel recovery missions. I think we're going to have to go out and get people. Uh, I would open up lines of communication. I'm sure we have lines of communication to the Taliban right now. Uh, and I would be communicating to them our intent to conduct those operations. And I would also make it very clear that we will salt the earth if we are fired upon or bombed or if any attack comes against us. Uh, and that um, how the Taliban, the Taliban has an opportunity here to realize its gains if they will simply allow us to recover our personnel and you know mitigate risk by kind of getting rid of of any left behind uh, equipment and material, which would be the other thing I would say is like, we got to, we got to destroy all that stuff. Um, and then <clears throat> uh, I would let them know that, look, there's a real possibility that we will, we will, we will change our policy mind. If you provoke us, uh, you're, you are in a tenuous, the Taliban is in a tenuous moment here. And if they, if they choose to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, uh, that, that we will remain and we will get about it. Now, I don't think the White House is going to do that, but that's what I would be saying we needed to do. Uh, and then finally, one thing I'm not hearing a lot of people talk about, but that is near and dear to me, in our hasty retreat, we have left a lot of data um, that the Taliban can use to identify um, Afghans who were cooperative with the United States government and allies. Uh, that data exists on, on servers. It exists in cloud services. There's even... Um, uh, bioinformatic collection devices that have been left behind that the Taliban has used in the past. I think back in 2016, they got a hold of an Afghan military um, uh, bioscanner that they then, I think, went onto a bus and they identified a dozen Afghan military using uh, their fingerprints. They pulled them off the bus and they executed them right there. We're going to see more of that because a lot of that data and a lot of those pieces of equipment have been left behind. So uh, one one question, um, you know, when we talk about negotiating with the Taliban, and this is something that I think, you know, honest, while there has been a bipartisan consensus, I acknowledge, although I've disagreed with it, to get out of Afghanistan, there hasn't been a lot of depth of, this has not been a front of mind issue for a lot of Americans. <laughs> and so there's not a lot of granular knowledge about the Taliban or the uh, the relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, et cetera, amongst even pretty well-informed Americans. And so one thing that I think um, is, is worth knowing, and a lot of people don't really know, is how much is the Taliban a, a consolidated, well, I'm trying to look for the right, um, <laughs> discipline maybe is the wrong word, but under unified control, and how much is it uh, factional? And, and is it possible for a leader of the Taliban to say, we will do X and the Taliban top to bottom will comply? Or are there factional pulls and pressures where even a leader of the Taliban could say, say in a meeting with an American official, we intend X and they can't make sure that will happen. So, you know, how, how factional is the Taliban? How much in control of its factions is its senior leadership? So over the last 20 years, it's kind of vacillated between those things. I think originally under Mullah Muhammad Omar, there was a, a fair bit of um, of command and control, although not not exclusively. I, I think there still were – you had plenty of warlords and, and others who were able to operate quite independently. So I guess, I guess my answer would be no, it's pretty factional. Um, 
just because we have a, uh, a a figurehead who who likely does enjoy some level of influence and and, and prominence, I don't think that any American who's speaking to that in, the, to, to that leader should assume that 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 word is is decisive and that that you can therefore count that there will be no you know hostile actions. So there are going to be plenty of. Uh, would be power brokers within the Taliban who will want to assert that they're more hostile toward the West than you know the guys who have liberalized and who've been enjoying all the the cushy treatment through these uh, these negotiations and you know the the the, the young bucks who who kind of want to sit, sit at the table that's all going to be there um, and you know that doesn't include the spoilers you know there's reports of Al Qaeda and and even ISIS kind of starting to move back into uh, in, into the scene. And, you know, historically they've always been willing to upset the apple cart. So no matter what the Taliban may or may not agree to, uh, if they see a target of opportunity, they'll seize on it because, you know, that's what they're about. The chaos plays into their hands. Uh, and so I, I don't think any American, I think we still deliver the, the ultimatum, but I think we plan against the worst. All right. So one, one other last sort of line of questions before we move on to the cybersecurity world and big tech, et cetera. Um, you know, there's, I think a lot of Americans have a lot of, um, optimism say about the ability of our, the combination of drones, um, technology, et cetera, to conduct effective counter terror. In other words, to conduct effective counter terror operations without a physical presence on the ground and that we can control the terror threat without that physical presence in Afghanistan. And that in fact, we will not be really creating safe havens because of that ability that we have to strike from the air. And my perception has always been, we've always, we, we tend to have a tendency to overweight the ability of technology to gain intelligence and underweight in modern times, the importance of human intelligence. But I'm an amateur compared to you, Klein. <laughs> so, Tell me if I'm wrong on that. So when we talk about targeting, we, we, we talk about a process that's the shorthand is find, fix, and finish. Um, and we, we have gotten phenomenal at uh, using technological capabilities and technical surveillance and, and collection capabilities in each of those three kind of chains uh, or links in the chain of finding, fixing, and finishing. But when you're talking about like blowing stuff up and killing people, it requires a level of knowledge and fidelity that, you know, just a camera typically isn't going to be able to provide. So the fact that I see a, a convoy of four white Toyota Hilux trucks traveling the road between Kabul and Bagram doesn't mean, oh, that's Taliban or, oh, that's Al-Qaeda and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow them up. Um, all of that, all of those types of military capabilities and intelligence actions are enabled um, by uh, a mosaic of intelligence, but it is often human intelligence that gets us across that last kind of five yards that, that, that actually turns it into actionable intelligence that we are able to, you know, operate on considering the level of risk and, um, uh, concerns about uh, non-combatant casualties that that we assume, right? So we could not care about all that and just blow anything up that moves. I mean, we certainly could do that. Um, but to operate within our, I think, right 
um, rules of engagement uh, and and to and to consider the the things that we ought to consider. Yeah, that requires that requires a level of um, of typically human intelligence. Now, I will say, as someone who has always been skeptical that Afghanistan would ever be anything remotely close to kind of a Western style democratic country. Even my own thinking, my own skepticism has been challenged by what's going on right now as I see, wow, we, you know, with 2,500 guys, we were holding the lid on this thing. And that seems like a relatively small price to pay to, to kind of have kept things from getting to where they are now. Um, you certainly have to have that if you want to do the type of meaningful counterterrorism mitigation efforts that everybody talks about. Now, if they're dumb enough to build a terrorist training camp, well, then we can send a tomahawk on that and, and, and take care of that. But I don't think they're going to be dumb enough to do that. Well, you know, I think one thing, because you, you went back to the 2,500, I, my, my own thought was it wouldn't have been 20. If, if Biden had said, look, the Taliban isn't upholding its end of the bargain. I'm not bound by this Trump deal. It's a bad deal. I don't think 2,500 would have been enough. It might've, he might've had to reinforce some, but it would never have been anything along the scale of the orders of magnitude less than the Afghan surge, for example. Um, you know, it reminds me of when we went back to Iraq in, in 2015, we went back first with hundreds and then a few thousand, but that was enough to stiffen the resistance of the Iraqi army. And the Iraqi army cleared Mosul house to house, block by block, with a few hundred American advisors and American air support. I think Americans underweight the extent to which just the, an American presence creates a force multiplier effect with the very same allies who left the field. <laughs> in the last few weeks or in Iraq left the field in 2014, you bring in an American presence, you allow them to fight the exact way we trained them to fight with American air support and, and other kind, kinds of American support. And, and they will actually fight as we've seen. I mean, the Iraq, the Afghan army took 50, 60,000 casualties fighting, fighting the Taliban. And I think that's one of the, the tragedies here that has been a failure of leadership. We have not explain to the American people that we're, that, that really a minimal exertion of our, of our military power keeps this enemy at bay. Yeah. You know, to be honest with you, a lot of this has gotten more mixed up in my mind. I, I obviously haven't been, I'm not the, I'm not the Afghanistan Taliban guy for quite some time now, but this is, this is causing me to kind of rethink some of my positions. I will say, I think people who say, look, we were there for two decades like these guys had a chance to kind of get their stuff in order and there's there's just no excuse for, you know, four weeks and the country falls. I, I, I have some sympathy there. Um, you know, but the reality is, is all that aside, you know, you know, long-term stability of Afghanistan aside, at the point where the president made the decision that we were leaving or that he was going to follow through on the decision that we were leaving, it seems to me that we simply did not do the bare minimum, the, the basics of making that transition responsibly. Even, even if you don't care about the Afghans, which I'm not asserting anyone actually feels, but even if you don't care about actual Afghans, our own people, like we haven't even secured our own people, our own resources. And that to me is just inexcusable. Right. 
Yeah. And I think it's it's one of the reasons why we're seeing, you know, public opinion has turned on Biden on this issue dramatically because there's a widespread consensus that basically says, OK, whether or not we should be there. Which is a debatable proposition, I'm not going to pretend for a minute that there isn't a, a, a viable argument that 20 years is has been long enough, but that at a minimum, whether you agree we should be there or, or or think we should be gone, securing the American citizens in that country and, by the way, our allies, the people who fought beside us and the interpreters and their families, at a minimum, we should have competently planned for their exit. And that's just not. that. That's, that's a disaster. That's a disaster that's got every bit as much of a bipartisan consensus around it as the withdrawal had. Yeah, that's right. Well, and again, you know, I was just thinking about the last administration, you know, um, say what you want, but we know of multiple occasions where his policy advisors talked the president out of some catastrophically bad choices. The Biden administration has failed to do that. You know, like True. They, True. They, 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 you know, if, if, if the adults are in the room now, if, if, if we've got our strategic geniuses back in the White House, they utterly failed their president to walk him away from this, even again, just out of sheer political survivability. Like this is just such an own goal. And it's, and, that, and that, that just sounds so trivial because we're talking about real people who are, who are living and dying because someone, you know, wasn't able to say, I'm sorry, Mr. President, if we take this action, you know, th- there's no easy recovery from this. Right, right, exactly. It's just, it's a, it's a h- avoidable human tragedy. And we can only hope and pray that the, the uneasy peace with the Taliban ho- keeps holding but there's no guarantee of that. I mean, there's just absolutely no guarantee of that. And we're at their mercy. And the United States of America should never be at the mercy of the Taliban to evacuate its own citizens and allies. Let's move on from that depressing subject to other depressing subjects. Um, let's, let's sort of table sort of the big tech discussion for if we have time at the end. But I'm really curious about... Um, you know, we're, we're moving into, and it, it feels as if we're moving in our post 9-11 era as we're turning the sort of the page, um, as it seems as if we're turning the page on the war on terror, although it will be up to jihadists how much we actually turn that page. But as we seem to turn the page somewhat on the war on terror and get in and seem to have a restoration or a return of the great power rivalry there's an element here to this great power rivalry that didn't exist so much in the Cold War. And that is cyber threats. Um, that's the ability of a foreign power to cripple our internet or our, our technological infrastructure in a profound way. So I got to ask you, have you read the book 2034? I have. Yes, I have. Okay. So I, I don't know how many readers have read it. I've, I've read it. It's an interesting Essentially, it's positing uh, the a, the course of a future war uh, with China that begins with a extraordinarily de- uh, decisive cyber attack that disables the ability of our ships, planes to defend themselves uh, against uh, against Chinese forces. And I had a couple of thoughts. One, just during my own service, um, I realized how much we depended on our technology. Just 
satellite, just the ability to access our satellites, for example, was indispensable for everything from targeting to locating our forces to communication, et cetera. So I realized, one, we're incredibly um, dependent on our technology to fight the way we've been trained to fight. And number two, I still found that scenario um, perhaps so so dramatic and implausible that I had trouble getting into the book. <laughs> Am I wrong? Um, well, I think I think it is clearly a thriller novel and was written as such. That being said, I I, I think there's enough truth there. So I think so. Number one, it was it was co-authored by uh, Elliot Ackerman and uh, retired Admiral James Stravitas. Stravitas is a sharp, experienced cookie who uh, is the former Supreme Allied uh, Commander of NATO. I mean, he's he knows what he's talking about. Uh, he's written a, at least one naval history. Um, and yeah, I, I, I respect, I respect the Admiral. He knows what he's talking about. Um, there are definitely some fantastical elements to that book. Um, I, w- I don't want to give too many spoilers, but, um, but I would say any of the individual capabilities discussed in that book are absolutely real. So for example, the idea that a, um, an enemy nation could, could disable one of our um, one of our our, uh, our our destroyers or some naval asset or vessel. I don't think we can categorically rule that out. Um, I think that that there's there's everything from locking us out of of, of satellite and GPS access <clears throat> to perhaps maybe have you know a, a long term clandestine campaign to infiltrate our um, supply chains that gave them critical access to you know the chips that make up all those computers on that destroyer. So these are, these are real concerns. Um, and, and so I think that, uh, that those cyber capabilities generally, both that are kind of tactical and, and, and nuanced all the way to the types of things that could have true strategic impact. I, I think that's all real now, whether or not they would be employed in the way they were discussed is another matter. Yeah. Th- th- this is a, you know, I, I brought up the book as an entree to get your, your sense, and I thought, uh, yeah, obviously it has fantastical elements. And I took in, in even though it's sort of like, really, it could get that bad. You know, the admiral's a serious guy. So, what is your assessment of our strategic cyber vulnerability? Is this something that we need to be paying more attention to? Um, in, in, you know, where do you, where do you see our deficiencies? Yeah, so one of the things that 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 makes the United States such a wonderful place to live is um, is just how deeply we've uh, integrated technology into our daily lives, and it, and it enables wonderful human thriving uh, in terms of um, you know the provision of services and the things that we carry in our hands and all the stuff that our phones can do. Like we we are deeply integrated, and and that makes for some pretty awesome stuff for us. At the same time, that uh, we are the most technologically leveraged nation on the planet as well, which means that we have, in information security circles, we, re- we refer to that as threat surface. We have a very, very, very large threat surface. And what that means is, is that um, there are a lot of ways that you can use cyber technology or s- cyber techniques and tools to disrupt our, our individual and our corporate lives. Um, and yes, we need to get serious about this. Um, and there's a lot of 
political rhetoric around getting serious about this. So um, when I, wor- I worked on the Hill very briefly, and when I did, um, I worked for a, a senator from Nebraska named Ben Sass. And uh, during that time, we put out a, uh, or uh, yeah, we wrote a, um, a piece of legislation that created something called the Cyber Solarium Commission. And that actually got passed in law and became a thing. And they have generated a massive report that lays out a kind of comprehensive approach to securing the American homeland and interests um, from a from a cyber perspective. Now, we have innovated faster than we have secured. And so when we talk about securing the nation from cyber threats, we are not talking about a small effort. We are talking about a comprehensive kind of societal level um, and it's going to have to be incremental, but we simply cannot afford to keep absorbing the types of, even just the ransomware attacks that we've been do- absorbing. And then we get into the solar wind stuff and, and the, the Chinese, um, Microsoft exchange hacks. And define ransomware, define ransomware attacks. Cause I, I'm not, everyone's going to be up on that lingo. Yep. So ransomware is essentially malicious software uh, that is sent to you in a number of different ways. Let's just say it's in an email, and uh, if you if you click on it, what it does is it locks your computer and your and it prevents you from gaining access to the information on your computer. And typically, uh, there's a a note and an opportunity for you to uh, pay a ransom for your information to be um, unencrypted and, and to regain access to it. Uh, and that is running rampant. It's a very cheap software. That kind of tool is available to anybody who wants it. There's even groups that offer ransomware as a service. So you can pay them to ransomware people for you. Uh, and it is um, the barriers to entry are very low and the tools are ubiquitous. And so it's it's hard to kind of categorically prevent the threat. And so what we have to do instead is we have to change the political calculus of governments who are allowing ransomware groups to operate within their borders. So if you had to rank sort of our vulnerabilities, say, with in, for, in different categories, so you've got military technology like in 2034 where, you know, they were able to disable a frigate, for example, um, in the novel, to infrastructure technology, the, the um, you know, the, the software that is, that is um, running our hydroelectric plants or our nuclear plants or our power generation, you know, our power generation and, and that kind of infrastructure, our financial infrastructure, such as our, um, you know, banking system, and then sort of the, the social media infrastructure of our own personal privacy and information. What, what's your sort of ranking of our vulnerabilities there? So uh, they're all too vulnerable. Uh, and then, <laughs> that's encouraging. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I did, well, it's one of those things where it's, it's give a us good some question. good news a, here. That's right. Well, hey, I'm the cyber guy. I don't get to do that very often. Um, <laughs> but you know, David, it's a little bit like asking, like, well, David, you know, rank which one you like most: your right arm, your left arm, your right leg, your left leg. You know, and the challenge with all of these things is that they're they're connected, right? So you don't actually get to isolate one from the other. Typically, now the one outlier may be kind of social media. And, you know, individual citizen data, we can talk about that. But just in terms of like critical infrastructure, financial uh, infrastructure, uh, you know, basic governance capabilities. Yeah. Part of the challenge is, is we don't actually fully understand what the cascading effects would be of taking one of those down. It, it may actually cause the other ones to go down. You know, so when we look back at the um, at the uh, the oil um 
the Dominion oil hack, uh, the ransomware attack that locked that up uh, in the last couple months. You know, the Department of Homeland Security put out a note saying that we were like five days away from cascading failures in uh, transportation and logistics supply chains. You know, and and the thing that a lot of people don't always appreciate is that we live in in a just in time economy, which means that there is very little margin for error in terms of the underlying supply chains and logistic lines that that make our nation run. And so if you were able to knock out, say, natural gas pipelines for 30 days, that has a lot. That's not just going to be how we heat our homes. That's going to turn into, okay, well, now we don't have trucks that can deliver groceries to grocery stores. And key, you know, key medical supplies are not being delivered to hospitals and so on and so forth. So the 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 infrastructure, because we have integrated it so deeply and because we have networked those those networks, um, they're all critical, and that's part of the challenge for the for the U.S. Right? The problem is so big uh, that, you know, our, our leaders do struggle somewhat understandably to decide, okay, how do we eat the elephant? How do we actually start kind of making meaningful progress along these lines so that we actually secure our, our interests and our people? Well, I'm sure you, I mean, in, in, in some of the, just the physical infrastructure of our technological, you know, th- there, there's a physical infrastructure here, uh, as well as sort of the software vulnerability. I'm sure you followed the Nashville bombing the Christmas bombing in Nashville, that was a shocking sort of wake up call for me personally, because here this bomber, this conspiracy theorist blows himself up in second Avenue in Nashville. It was a big bomb, by the way, Klon. I mean, it was a big bomb. I, I, as soon as it happened, I, I headed downtown cause I wanted to, you know, just my, I wanted to see what had happened and I was able, I got there before all the security cordons were completely set up and I could see firsthand how bad it was. And it was a, it was stunning, but even more stunning sort of than the actual physical destruction, which was shocking enough, was the damage to the communications infrastructure in the Southeast by hitting that one building. I, I was I felt like I went back to 1939 all of a sudden because the only way I could get information was by going to my car and turning on my car radio. <laughs> um, and that was a shocking demonstration to me of how we have these choke points. Yeah, and you know, look, it's it's you know by God's grace we have not seen more of that. I think if the American people truly understood, um, and we make it a point of not broadcasting this because it just invites you know, bad guy activity, but, you know, look, we have, we have real vulnerabilities and, um, and, and some of our key competitors like Russia and, and, and China to some degree, they, they don't have that same level of exposure. And, and, and that, that probably gives them some sense of, um, kind of aggressiveness that, that we may actually have a, a lower pain point than they do when it comes to these types of, um, cyber threats and activities. All right. Well, let's let's move on to another area. We're we're just going to be pinging into just various areas of your expertise. So we've we've talked about Afghanistan. We've talked about cyber threats and cybersecurity. Let's talk about big tech and censorship, um, because this is an area you've done an awful lot of work in. What in my assessment of sort of the state of play right now is we're kind of at a stalemate in this sense, and that there is some bipartisan consensus that um, my, my own sort of more libertarian view is, um, un, is not fashionable right now. <laughs> that the, the, the more fashionable view is that 
government needs to be more involved in social media content moderation. And the, if you had to overgeneralize, you would overgeneralize like this. The right wants um, the government to intervene to guarantee less moderation, and the left wants government in, to intervene to guarantee more moderation. And therefore, we're, we're, although there's consensus of government action, a bipartisan consensus of government action, there is total division on the where, what that action should be. Therefore, we're kind of at a, at a stalemate, except for you know, individual states like Florida that might want to try their own thing that get you know, swatted aside in court pretty quickly. Is that a, a pretty fair assessment of the state of play? Yeah, I think the conversation has has had a couple of different evolutions, uh, and I think what you're describing is 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 a correct description of where we stand now. And so, I would say that um, maybe two years ago there was a very clear consensus and what looked like a lot of political will to legislatively address the concerns that you described. On the right, it was, "Hey, there's too much." Uh, moderation going on. And on the left, there was not enough moderation going on. And so we had these long conversations about things like Section 230, which is uh, a piece of legislation that provides a type of what's called intermediary liability protection for some of these platforms. In other words, if someone posts a piece of content uh, on Twitter, um, Twitter cannot be held liable uh, for for that piece of content. Um, that's a very general description of the of the matter. But a lot of people saw that as a piece of, of law that needed to be changed. And I even wrote about how it could be improved. I, I do think it can be improved. Um, but the world tends to divide between people who think it should be completely obliterated and removed and those who think that it's sacrosanct and that, you know, even looking askance at it could risk, you know, all that we know in, in terms of innovation and, and, and economic prosperity. Um, I say I think it's a good piece of legislation generally. Uh, that's th- whose whose benefits are, are worth trying to preserve, but that you know it was written in 1996. The internet has evolved significantly, and it doesn't appropriately address some concerns, particularly when we think about social media. Okay, so that's the kind of nerdy policy side of it. The reality is, though, is that the political sides realize okay, there's not actual political consensus on what to do. Everybody agrees there's a problem. But we don't actually agree on what to do about it. And so what, what's happened now is, is they've realized, you know what, we don't actually have to solve this. In fact, this is a really effective political club for us just to keep using. <laughs> yeah. And so we're going to do that, right? I'm going to keep raising money on it. I'm going to keep kind of pointing at the boogeyman of big tech. And, um, and that's really profitable for me uh, on both the left and the right. And so that's what we're going to do. And I think that's where we are. I do not anticipate meaningful kind of big tech legislation anytime soon because the underlying facts of the situation aren't changing. So let's go back to something you were talking about with Section 230. So my own view of Section 230 is, look, Section 230 is not holy scripture. <laughs> it's it's not, you know, divinely inspired. I'm not going to c- circle the wagons around and say that Section 230 is perfect legislation, but I haven't seen a proposal that's better than the status quo has been one of my arguments. And my other argument is that a lot of the core of Section 230 is really just a statutory codification of where First Amendment jurisprudence would lead us anyway. Um, and so it's not not exactly, it's not exactly where First Amendment jurisprudence would lead us, but in, in directionally it is. So you're, advi- you're uh, advising, let's say you're back working with Senator Sass uh, still, and you're advising him on how you could improve Section 230. 
convince me you have a better 230 than the existing 230. Because I've yet to see a good propo- a proposal about 230 that's better than existing 230. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think that there's a number of tweaks I would make that were, are largely on the margins. But the, I think the fundamental thing that goes to the heart of a lot of the honestly, just general Americans' uh, perspective on this. So the the protections of X230 um, are predicated on this notion of um, the intent behind enforcement actions that, that, these, that these companies use, and specifically that they're not intended to uh, purposefully disenfranchise users. Um, it doesn't, it does, that is not the same as saying a neutral. I don't think it presumes a neutral perspective. But there's a there is they make this distinction in the legislation about editorializing, so that um, as long as a platform is not making editorial judgments on a piece of content, meaning substantially changing it, then they they receive the uh, immunity. Well, in the way that the internet and particularly social media has evolved, I think that they, that we should have a political debate about what is the line between um, kind of normal content labeling and what amounts to practically as political editorializing. So sometimes it makes perfect sense for Twitter or someone else to label, you know, a, a, a self-harm video is like, nope, that's self-harm. We're not going to show that. That That's got it. Okay. Um, it's another thing when they make decisions about you know, news coverage of a, of a presidential candidate's son. And that's where a lot of people feel like they're getting, um, getting, I mean, and by the way, like um, Pew polling shows that like 70% of the American population thinks that these, uh, that, that social media companies uh, dictate what will be shared on their platforms via a, a political lens, which as you would, I think, quickly argue is their right to do. Right. Um, but in terms of fixing 230 or at least improving it, I do think that a, a political debate about where are we going to draw this line between the kind of inescapable content labeling and moderation that should occur and that we're actually trying to incentivize versus a type of political editorializing that that we're that they can do, but that we may not guarantee the same protections under Section 230 if they do it. Right, because because Section two thirty, in my view, is a is a benefit. Right, it's 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 not the natural state of things. Right, it is itself a government intervention, and I think that there's a rationale for that intervention. There are goods for society and for these companies, and economically and otherwise. But we're we're making decisions about under what circumstances will these benefits be accrued. And I think it's okay for us to come back to this conversation and renegotiate what that situation ought to be in light of the modern internet. Yeah, it's the interesting issue there, though, is as soon as you start to get into the political content uh, and the way in which these companies um, promote, characterize, et cetera, political content, the more you're going to get into their core First Amendment interest, uh, which makes this a very difficult and tricky thing. I, I, I was in a conversation not long ago with um, some, some senior tech folks in big tech world. And I said, here's one of the problems you guys have. 
you're trying to have it both ways. You're trying to say, we're a marketplace of ideas, except not for those ideas. And what in this is the this is I said you you're doing exactly what the speech code folks in higher ed did in the late 80s and early 1990s is that what they tried to do is say we're for free speech but not that free speech okay and at a private school you could absolutely do that public school that was unconstitutional but people could see through that you know th- they could see through that and if you're sitting there and you're saying we're totally for free speech and don't take our more draconian content moderation on one side of the political spectrum as indicative of anything except a completely objective, neutral evaluation. What? No, that's not what's going on here. And I think that's one of the things that, it, at least for a lot of people, is kind of um, really impacting this sort of fundamental sense of fair play. Be, at least be who, be honest about who you are. <laughs> Twitter is progressive. Twitter is progressive. Um, can you just say that? And our moderation policies are informed by our progressive worldview. Can you say that? And I think the unwillingness to just own it is something that, you know, builds distrust. That's right. Yeah. So um, there is a that lack of coherency, which everybody sees through, is what undermines their legitimacy, right? And I, not to get too philosophical, but we in the West generally have lost the language and, and the, the, the mental frames of, of worldview of, of, of like, look, I, I see the world through a set of lenses and um, I engage it in an effort. Most of us try to engage it in an intellectually coherent way, although even that is starting to erode. That law of non-contradiction seems to be eroding in the minds of both the left and the right. Um, but yeah, I often find that when I engage my friends in the tech community, who I do think, generally speaking, aren't intending to be malevolent. They they don't intend to be, you know, mean or awful. They just, they don't have the language. They don't have the frames to even understand that they're fish who don't know they're in water. And, uh, and, and you know, those of us who are looking at this, even if you can't kind of put a name on it and, and describe it perhaps the way that you and I are right now, you know something's wrong, and um, these companies have a legitimacy problem, and um, it hasn't though presented itself sufficiently financially to them to where they're actually willing to engage it, and instead they largely just try and spin out of it and think that it's a PR problem, and that's why there hasn't been meaningful progress on the issue. Well, you know, and one of the reasons why I very intentionally use the university analogy when talking to um, these folks. And again, I, in my experience, the folks I talk to, they're not sitting there like you, if you read right-wing Twitter, you, you would imagine that every one of them is Mr. Burns from the Simpsons, just sitting there rubbing their hands together, like uh, just taking huge delight in owning conservatives. A lot of these folks, they're operating in good faith, dealing with some really difficult decisions. I mean, just sit down and try to think about a moderation regime that A, allows for wide degree of viewpoint diversity, and B, does not create gab or parlor, places that are just open sewers on the internet, which are not commercially, not they're not commercially viable to the same scale as these other companies. It's a very hard thing to do. 
But the reason why I use that a university analogy is it's this very similar situation where people don't know they're 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 fish that they don't know they're wet because <laughs> they're in a in many ways an ideological monoculture. And so take, for example, the concept of misgendering, you know, if which is a banning misgendering is a is a very ideological choice to make. Um, and they would say and pass a polygraph and say, I'm not engaging in viewpoint discrimination. I'm protecting users from harassment. Okay. And that's very reminiscent of the speech code debate where somebody could pass a polygraph and they'd say, I'm not inhibiting the marketplace of ideas on campus. I'm protecting people from harassment. But the definition of harassment had grown and expanded beyond what was the actual legal definition. And I think a lot of that is what's going on and as you were saying, it creates a legitimacy issue um, because one side is saying, hey, I genuinely believe all we're doing is limiting harassment. And the other side is saying, you know, you just made a massive ideological choice there. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's where where Twitter has an internal conflict. So they'll position themselves as like the free speech platform. Right. And to be to, you know, if I were to stand on, on their side of the of the line for a second, you and I both know, because we've been recipients of, of, of similar stuff, um, there's a lot of terrible things going on on social media. Like people oh, are boy. terrible. And so I appreciate and can understand why Twitter would feel a compulsion. Like if there is a transgender user who is just being inundated with, you know, all the awful things that we can imagine, that that makes a perfect sense to me why they would feel compelled to kind of step in between the user and that community and and like slow that down. That makes perfect sense to me. At the same time, if you're going to be kind of a free speech platform where debate happens and the topic of transgenderism comes up and someone asserts the viewpoint that a transgender man is a woman who is a woman, is a biological woman, and you're going to call that hate. Well, okay, you've got, you've got a problem there, right? And, and they will try to draw a line and say, well, if you just said that generally, then it's not a violation of our, our, our content moderation policy. But if you say that about a specific person, perhaps someone you're actually engaging in a debate at the time, well, then that's hate speech. And underlying all that is a presupposition of this notion of, of word violence, that, that saying something that makes someone uncomfortable equals or should be treated as tantamount to actual physical threats or violence. And they have the right to assume that worldview, but they should admit that and, and be transparent about that. Well, yeah, and and to be very clear, I do think, just as you were saying, that there there are behaviors online, whether it's this concept of misgendering or others, where you can be engaging in targeted harassment of an individual for which you should face consequences. And in fact, in the offline world, and, and we often don't realize that there are a lot of parallels to this in the offline world. So, for example, let's say you work at a law firm or you work at any company and you have a disagreement let's you know let's just touch all the third rails at once Let, let's say <laughs> you you have a disagreement about abortion okay and if you walk into somebody's office a a colleague who maybe somehow you knew that your colleague uh had an abortion and you start wearing them out 
in person in the workplace about abortion, well, you can and should be disciplined for that. That's a, you know, that is, that's personal harassment of an individual. But if you write on your Facebook post that people should donate to a crisis pregnancy center or vote for pro-life candidates, in other words, dealing about an issue, the idea that we would, they would really, uh, uh, enrage a lot of people, this idea that, wait a minute, I can't even be pro-life and work at this law firm or be pro-life or work at this company. What are you talking about? And we've really lost that distinction often between this kind of personal, targeted, intentional immiserating of other human beings versus an argument about an idea that is emotionally fraught, but should be discussed. And that that's where you're getting into this concept of word violence, that in other words, even discussing the idea, if not personally targeted at me, but makes me feel upset, banning that, that's where you're really moving into a, a world where you're inhibiting the marketplace of ideas. Well, and it, you know where it does get slightly more complicated to, to kind of continue your law firm metaphor is I think a lot of people could look at it and say, well, it's it's actually more akin to the fact that your law firm has has called, has given that lawyer a platform and called a meeting where they get to espouse uh, all the the benefits of them having had an abortion, which allowed them to go to uh, law school and now become the successful lawyer, right? And they get to promote that. And then you raise your hand from the audience and say, well, excuse me. And then you kind of get into a back and forth. Um, and, and I think a lot of people feel like that. That's what's going on in social media. And sometimes it is that. Other times it's categorically not that, and it's just meanness. Um, but the the point is, is that the platforms themselves have not made these differentiations. They're trying, number one, to have these kind of universal global standards that can apply everywhere at all places at all times, which just does not work because the that naturally dumps down. It, it gets the lowest common denominator in terms of freedom of speech and things like that. So where it leaves all, you know, to kind of put a bow on this uh, in one sense, I think that um, that free speech uh, is critical to the American experience. Uh, I think it is undeniable that social media platforms are shaping popular notions of freedom of speech and even popular expressions of freedom of speech, that they are incredibly powerful in shaping our society and that people are struggling with that. I also feel like Constitutionally speaking, it's not even ambiguous as to whether or not these companies have their own free speech rights and capabilities. I mean, that's just not, it's not unclear. It's, it's, it's set. <laughs> it's, and, it's crystal clear. <laughs> exactly. Right. And, and so, you know, and I, we, we, we will often ascribe to them more influence than they deserve. They are hugely influential, but you know, they, they are not the end all be all. So they're very happy for you to think that. <laughs> because it plays into their business model. If if we're if if you know they're very happy for you to have you think that like we are where the public dialogue occurs. Therefore, all of your marketing dollars should come to us, right? And we we need to be more sophisticated than that and um, and assert ourselves in the broader public square accordingly. Well, you know, I when I hear people say these companies are more powerful than na than nation states, I I kind of chuckle. Um, you know, if somebody breaks into my house, I'm not calling Facebook. If, we, you know, if we need to respond to Chinese aggression in Taiwan, Jack Dorsey is of minimal assistance. I mean, this is just, 
But anyway, yeah, and and I think one thing that is, uh, we have a lot of doom saying around it, but here's another reality that we don't fully appreciate, is that right now we're living in an era where we have, the average American has more ability to speak to more people than any time in the entire history of the human race. And, and look, I get it about cancel culture. I understand this. I think it's a problem. I'm actually going to write about it again today because I've been thinking about it in some different ways. But we live in this sort of sense of emergency about free speech when the reality is, by historical standards, we're living in like the halcyon days of free speech. Uh, not just the ability to speak free of government punishment, but the ability to get your message out to other human beings is unlike anything experienced in human history. And I feel like that should kind of, that sort of perspective belongs somewhere in the debate. <laughs> somewhere yeah, in the well, debate. And, and, and even for conservatives who are concerned about this, which I know many, many are, conservatives dominate social media. I mean, we like there is a thriving conservative uh, presence on every social media platform. And um, I mean, all of the all of the data and stats bear that out. Um, and that doesn't mean that some of the <clears throat> some of the frustrations that conservatives identify aren't there. They absolutely are. But again, it's it, when someone asks me into this conversation, I'm always somewhat hesitant because I get to be the nerdy, you know, DC guy who's like, well, it's actually more nuanced than that. And nobody's yeah. interested in hearing that. No, I mean, sure. nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> um, it's, you know, you're either a hundred percent good guy or a hundred percent bad guy. And, uh, I don't work in that world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have kept you, uh, long enough. I know you've got a lot of big stuff happening today, so, um, I'll let you go, but Klon, this has been a great conversation Thanks so much for um, giving us your time and your expertise. And the remnant audience is the audience for nuance. So <laughs> as is the as are the members of the dispatch.com. And I would urge everyone to go check us out at the dispatch.com. And uh, we're gonna end uh, with the in the traditional way. Um, so I'll sign off by saying, we will see you next time. No, you won't. It's a podcast. <laughs>